Welcome to Mamlaka Hill Chapel Ruwaka's podcast. Join us as we explore the depths of sin in our new series on the seven deadly sins. We'll be exploring each one of them and with the help of the Holy Spirit, learn how we can be guarded against them. And here's today's message. Um, well, just not so long ago, I, there was this medical cup that the church ably provided. I joined the queue and I was there to have my checkups done, like all of you who came did. But to my utter disbelief, at the end of the couple of tests, I was reminded that my body fat was quite high. I mean, you see, I mean, a newsflash, that my body fat was quite high and I needed to try and cut the body fat. Uh, last year, one of my goals was to add just a couple of weight. Kidogo to, Uzito Kidogo to, yeah, because I'm always compared to some of my um, peers, who I shall not mention them, um, <laughs> but if you know them, you know them. There's a lot of transformation that has happened over time. Uh, I cleared campus, and it, it seems like nothing has changed about me. But rarely do we walk to hospital, as you have probably have done so, walk to hospital and say, you know what, I'm suffering from acute bronchitis. Kindly serve me a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug and give it to a dosage of three times two. Rarely do walk to hospital and say, I am suffering and I'm sick because of this. And therefore, it's likely that we walk to the hospital or to the chemist with symptoms. And some of us, including me, me included in that category, we try to self-medicate and self-diagnose, right? You walk there and you're like, just give me cetrizim one times two, I'll be fine. Yeah? And until, it's until when the advert rings true, then you realize that you need more medicine, whereby it says when symptoms persist, seek medical advice. And it's only then when you realize that you are truly sick, and therefore you need a specialist to open up, to do all those texts, get those two small cans that you don't like getting, and have to do what you have to do so that the person in the lab can go back to the root cause of what you're facing. Today we start a new series, and our desire is that we'll stand before God patiently, like a patient going on x-ray and saying, I am sick, I want to know my results, and like the way you peel an onion bulb, one piece after another, going deep into the crust of what is in the middle, our hope is that we let the word of God just do that to us. We pray that God will use his word to do a proper heart surgery to our ailing hearts. Hebrews 4.12 will actually say that this is what the word of God is, that it is alive, it is active, it is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Our hope is that this series will be used as just to do that, to open our hearts to see what is right inside. It's true that sometimes we view God's word as an encouragement, right? We go to the scriptures for encouragement, but rarely do we want to be excited to go to the scriptures to be rebuked. Today, and even as we continue this series, I pray that the word of God, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, by God, the author himself, it will teach you, it will correct you, it will rebuke you, it will train you in righteousness, so that the whole man of God may be thoroughly built up to do every good work. But the question here is then, how will you reap the best out of this series? What then should be the posture of your heart? One, our prayer is this, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to test you, to try you. Psalms 26, 6 says, test me and try me, examine my mind and heart. Psalms 139, verses 23 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Test me and know my anxious thoughts. It's also likely that you might have a temptation to want to listen to all these six-part series with someone else in mind. Yeah? You don't want to listen to it with, I know, by the pride, envy, that person. You want, you'll actually have the temptation to want to forward the link even before the sermon is over. Run away from that temptation. Ask the Lord to shed abroad his light for you to see the full extent of what ails your heart. Also, our goal is not to facilitate moral behavioral change. We're not telling you, become a better you. If you were to tell you to become a better you, you would become the worst version of you because out of your heart flows nothing but sin. But our goal is that through this series, you will sit before the word of God and that your numb hearts would be awakened to the realities of your sin that lie within. Now this time, would you just turn to the person sitting next to you, tell them, David Nweke says hi, and karibu to our, our sermon today. <laughs> well, I hope you are excited to start this series called The Seven Deadly Sins. I hope you're excited. Um, and I hope you will love us and love me by the end of the sermon. Uh, and probably you ask, what are these seven deadly sins? These seven deadly sins are firstly, pride, envy, anger, greed, sloth, gluttony, and lust. These sins are familiar. They are familiar, for we have tested them. Secondly, they are also unfamiliar, for we do not see ourselves doing them, for they disguise themselves in different forms, shapes, and sizes. But the question is, are these seven deadly sins only the deadly sins? You may ask. In fact, my point to tell you today is that all sin is deadly. All sin is lethal. You are, your sin is not just a mistake. It's not, it's not just an oops. Oh God, would I allow a kind of moment. No, 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 no. Your sin is cosmic treason against God. Romans would actually say, Romans 6.23 would say, for the wages of sin is what? It's death. Sin is a faithful master. It is a faithful master because it surely pays its slaves and that payment is nothing but death. And therefore we need to actually take into account this series as a seven dimension kind of test. The way you would walk from having your blood pressure checked go to another place whereby your blood would be tested, go to another place, have an MRI, go to another place, have your x-ray done. Look at this series as a way that you walk into a medical health checkup for the proper state of your heart and therefore walk out of it knowing that God is willing to save us who have fallen in that way. Also, the second thing, also run from the temptation of categorizing sins, that they are big sins and they are smaller sins, because that poses one great challenge. It poses a challenge that some sins are less condemnable. And my hope is that as we start this self-examining test of the true states of our hearts, that we would actually go to the very roots of our sinful dispositions and call ourselves constantly to these meetings and say, this is who I am, and therefore God, make us collect the broken pieces of our hearts, lead us to your way and to your truth. So today we start with the sin of pride, uh, and there we start. Um, but what, what is pride, you may ask, and it is rather unlikely that you turn to your neighbor and say, I'm such a proud guy. It's likely, likely that you'll actually turn to the person next to you and say, you know, you know I struggle with pride. Pride often feels normal. Pride feels normal. Actually, our world celebrates proud people. 
It is that one sin that the more we have ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. It is that sin that the more we have ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Pride is familiar. It disguises itself in the subtle comments that we make. It displays itself in your family gatherings when that last born has omokad and, and they want to show you that, you know what, uh, when you have those sibling reveries, pride perverses in our family meetings. It goes to boardrooms when people are making their presentations and giving, calling the shots. It disguises itself in the sarcastic Christianese comments that we make. It displays itself in our thoughts. And even our kids at the crash are not left out. They put a toy down and all, almost all, all of a sudden they realize that that toy belongs to them and yet the toy is not even theirs and therefore they fight because of that. Pride displays itself in many, many ways. But before you cut yourself loose from it and, 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 and ask me, Mimi, Nicola Pride, you go ahead and ask, am I struggling with pride? Here are a couple of questions for you to consider with me. And as I read these questions, just ponder and, and, and reflect on, on who you are. Firstly, do you consider yourself better than you think you are and think that you deserve attention and accolades? Do you struggle to ask for help? I repeat, do you struggle to ask for help when you so desperately need it? Number two, do you rebel and struggle to submit to those in authority over you because you think you know better? Or do you struggle to do mundane, stroke, ordinary things because you feel you are too important? to stoop low to pick the trash or serve others. Over the past one year or two, have you cut toxic people? <laughs> Deleted contacts. And all you see is that they all have a problem dealing with your perfect self and you don't see yourself as the constant K that you are the problem. Are you entitled? Do you struggle with entitlement? Do you expect people to deal with you as per the status you hold? And when they don't, you wander deep within. Do you know who you're dealing with? <laughs> Do you pull this card? You should know people. What is your response when things don't go your way? For us who are passionate people who love to engage intensely in conversations, in arguments, do you fight to be right or to win the argument? Do you struggle to pray when you can make it or make it and you feel I can actually do this without even having God's help? And therefore, it is on your own way, trusting on your own ways. In conversations with friends and family, do you talk about yourself more and you often circle back the conversation back to yourself, highlighting your achievements and your connections and what you've achieved? And to us who struggle with ego, do you have a sensitive ego? Unwilling to consider the opinion of others, you can't tolerate getting corrected. In fact, if you're wrong, you'd rather do anything less else by saying, you'd rather say so than saying sorry. Is this you? Newsflash. I had shared a WhatsApp link for the pride people. Consider yourself added to that group. Because all these scenarios display nothing else but, but pride. But the question here is, what is pride? What is pride? By definition, pride, it is the sinful, sinful inclination of the heart to consider self above God and above others. Pride is the sinful inclination of the human heart to consider self above God and above others. This is what pride says. Pride says, I know when you, when you don't. It leads to self-trust. At the heart of the first rebellion of angels, the legions of heaven 
the angels desired not to stay in their position and they desired more authority. And what happened to them? They were cast down. At the very heart of the scene that happened in Genesis 3, when the serpent posed that question to Eve, saying, did God really say, was the proponent, don't consider God, consider self, be like God. The serpent promised exaltation, not humility. The promise that God, the promise was this, God doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't know that if you eat this fruit, you'd actually die. Serpent was saying, I know that if you eat this fruit, you will become God. But the interesting bit here is that pride displays itself in various ways. When succeeding, pride seeks to self-promote. It seeks self-promotion. It takes credit. It says, I did this. And after that, on achievements, pride says, I am exalted because I had to show self-exaltation, putting things forward so that people will actually take credit and honor you. But also on the flip side, when failing and when experiencing failure, this is what pride morphs into. It morphs into self-pity. It leads to, I deserve admiration because I have suffered so much. That is what pride does. But just notice what C.S. Lewis notes in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, if you want to know how proud you are, the easiest question to ask is this. How much do I dislike it when other people ignore me, when other people humiliate me, when other people refuse to take notice of me, and when other people show off? If you are to put a scale, if your answers to this question would be 100%, you already have your credit score with regards to your level of pride. But the question here is, what puffs up? What stirs pride within us? What really leads us to a place of pride? Firstly, your natural abilities and intellectual talents lead you to a place of pride. It's true that some of us are gifted more in, more in other areas than, than others, right? And therefore, it's likely that because of that, we feel puffed up. And C.S. Lewis has an interesting commentary on this. He says, you may say that people are proud for being rich, probably they are proud for being clever, probably they are proud for being, are proud for being uh, beautiful, stroke handsome, but people are proud out of their competitive nature. He says, if we are all equals in riches, if all of us, if our bank accounts were to be leveled like this and have the same standard of what is beautiful, what is handsome, what is intellectually admirable, he says, it is likely that we will never be proud. Pride seeks and desires to be above the rest. Pride strives to tower over others. It longs for nothing less but superiority. But that's the second thing also that comes in is that our earthly possessions cause us to be proud. Some of us probably have made it and probably when people share their struggles, you wonder with contempt. Kwani ujipangangi bro? Yeah? Like, you don't, you, don't, you don't have a plan for your life. Earthly possessions can cause us to wonder sometimes and you wonder, you don't plan your life and you look to others with contempt. And this is something that is warned by, uh, by, by to the Israelites by God in Deuteronomy 8.10. He says, when you have gone to the land that is flowing with milk and honey, when you are fully satisfied, when you've already built those houses, remember, this is what your heart can be. It can become proud and it can for- do what? Forget God. Pride leads to nothing less than forgetting God. When you have that seven-figure salary, when you've packed your BMW X8 2021 model, when you've built your five-bedroom mansion at house in Runda, it's likely that you can get to a place of feeling, you know what, I have done all this by my strength. But the other thing that also is subtle among us is that 
Pride also displays itself by our morals and spiritual values. Pride masquerades in our testimonies and praise reports. And it's interesting to take notice on what Jesus says in Luke 18, 9 to 12, uh, part of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that was well written, and I hope you reflected on that on our, on our prayer guide. It starts by saying, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. To try and just make that whole statement into one statement. Jesus was actually saying, to the spiritual proud, this is what you have to say. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. And who are the other people? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What do I do? I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. At the heart of that place, he's saying, you know what? I am so holy, God. You are worthy of my attention. Because of my acts of righteousness, you can have my audience. Not like this tax collector. Spiritual pride says it is quick to find fault with other believers and quick to see their deficiencies. Spiritual pride tends to speak of other person's sins with bitterness or with laughter and an air of contempt. When that brother comes and shares whatever they are struggling with, you tell them, you know, the Lord is willing to comfort you. But deep within you are like, wow, 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 wow. You, out of contempt. But the question here is, what, what does God say about pride? What does God say about this sin called pride? Jesus, first of all, highlights that pride flows from our sinful hearts in Mark 7, 21 to 23. Jesus reminds us, that, and he pulls up a list, and this is what he says, from verses 21 to 23, from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, adulteries, fornications, murderers, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, come, come from within and defile a man, right? Jesus notes that from, this, from your heart, out of your heart, flows pride. Again, God calls pride sin. In Proverbs 21.4, through the wise words of Solomon, he says, a haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are what? Are sin. So pride is not something that you carry with you as a badge of honor. God calls it sin. But let's looking at that text. It says, a haughty look, a proud heart. I just want us to pause and discuss this haughty look, Manenos, yeah? In our African culture, we, we know sometimes that eyes speak louder than words. If you've had an African mom, there's a way someone can tupa macho to your, to your corner and you will know, you know what, I need to actually change. But there's also that pride, prideful, haughty look that you give people when you think of yourself to be a 10 over 10 and when you look at someone and size them and give them a figure and conclude with pride, I'm better than you. In that moment when someone shares their presentation in the meeting and they don't bring out across a point as you think it should have been, and you feel like if I could take that point, I could have done a lot. I could have actually gotten a 15 out of 10 out of that presentation. It's only from a proudful heart that haughty looks flow. 
a proud heart where thoughts of superiority reign, claiming that I am better than you. And thirdly, here we see also what God says in the book of Proverbs 16:18. He says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The end goal of the proud people or the end goal of pride is nothing else but destruction. But the question here is then, how does God deal with pride or how does he deal with the proud? And this is quite interesting. David says this in Psalms 138 verses 6. He says, For you though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. God knows the proud. He knows the pride within, regardless of how it morphs itself in different shapes, sizes, and forms. God knows it. But secondly, this is what James says in James 4, 6. He says, God opposes the proud. God does oppose the proud, the proud. And this is why. Pride is an affront to the glory only due to God. The proud say, God says to the proud this. This is what God says to the proud. When he says God opposes the proud, he says, you have set yourself against me. Let's meet face to face and see who wins. From God's perspective, God sees the proud and opposes them and says, you have set yourself against me. Let's meet face to face and see who wins. In Isaiah 2.12, this is what the Bible says, the Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the, all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted and all they will be humbled. God has a day in store for all who are proud to be humbled. In Psalms 101 from verses 5, in Psalms 101 verses 5, it says, whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, what will I do? I will not tolerate. God does not tolerate the proud. He doesn't. Proverbs 8, 13 says, to, the, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. He says, I hate arrogant pride. You can actually have pride, but also your heart has the disposition of having arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. And God says, I hate that, I will not tolerate that, and I will not let it go unpunished. God sees the pride within, and he will not let it go unpunished. Now I want us to do a case study just to look at two people who are proud in the Bible. And firstly, let's start with the book of Acts chapter 12. You could turn there. The book of Acts chapter 12, we see a king called King Herod. Um, it is about that time when he had arrested some who belonged to the church. He was planning to persecute the church. He has James with him. He has John with him. He goes ahead and executes both of them. And because the Jews go ahead and applaud him and he wants to people please for his own political reasons, he goes ahead and takes Peter and locks him up, up in jail. Thereafter, we see Peter is in prison. The church is aware that Herod is here to persecute the church. They go into prayer, and we see the miraculous deliverance of Peter in that text. And thereafter, we see God delivering Peter and the church continuing. Then thereafter, we see a commentary about his death from verses 19, where I would ask us to, just to turn there for us to read. This is what it says. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea, and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They, had, uh, they now joined together and sought an audience with him, having secured 
um, the support of Blasters, a trusted personnel servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their supply. So we see there was this commotion. The, the King Herod is angry about some other people. Then these people decide to come and make a pact with him. And then we see from verses 21 on that appointed day, this is what um, Luke records. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And just notice that how that went. We are not told about what the speech was all about. Probably it was a thunderous um, speech. Those that you sit and it's a standing ovation, you're like, what a man. What a speech. It's likely that, that we are not told about what happened. But clearly we see that there was a response from the people. And these people shouted and said, in verses uh, 22, this is the voice of a God and not a man. Notice what happened there, thereafter. Verses, verses 23, immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Josephus, one of the early um, writers, captures this moment quite ably and he says that when Herod, King Herod was coming, he was having this auditorium and if you've You've gone back and read history. Those auditoriums were huge. Um, he actually says that the robes that Herod wore had silver platings on them. And there was a lot of sun. Probably It was probably either in the, in the afternoon or thereabouts. The sun kind of shone upon him when he was going on, onto that stage. And you can imagine that robe having silver plated ornaments in its linen. Him walking in glory and majesty and power and standing and giving this speech. And then people rowing. This voice is not voice of a man. This is the voice of a God. But what happens? Because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by what? By worms. Picture yourself seated in that auditorium. Part of the people shouting, This man, his voice is not of a man, he's the voice of a God. And before long he falls with that glorious uh, plated linen of robes to the ground being eaten by worms. And those worms, what Joseph says, they actually consumed him to death. God shows us through this particular story that he is willing to act with immediacy and with urgency to your pride. He is willing to do that. But notice how this text moves on so fast. Let's remember that Herod was there as a king trying to stop the, the, the proclamation of God's word. He took James, who, who was an apostle, he took Peter, he killed them, right? So that he would actually gain favor from the Jews, but also by so doing, persecute the propagation of God's word. Notice what verse 24 says, as if nothing happened, but the word of the Lord continued, the word of God continued to increase and spread. God is like, you are trying to be the persecutor and the executioner of my people. I have an agenda, an agenda for, my, for, my, for, my, for my faith. I will deal with you in a very small way. I will show you that a worm can kill you and still continue perpetrating with the gospel and spreading it to the ends of the earth. And probably for some of us, like Herod, praises will come your way. Praises will, people will acknowledge that you are intelligent. 
They will acknowledge that you are given earthly possessions. They will call you kiongozi, engineer, mukurugenzi. They will say there is no one who is as beautiful or as handsome as you. As you. Praises will come your, your way. But notice from the text, God does not come and strike the crowd. The crowd said whatever they were, they were doing. God comes and strikes who? The person who took the glory and said, I will not give this glory to who? To God. Remember there's a difference between appreciating a pat on the back for a good job done and by so doing, being happy that you did this, the glory of God. And taking in this glory and thinking, what a brilliant, intelligent, wealthy, fine person I must have been to have done this. Run away from that temptation. Pride does not stop at the praises of men. It goes a step further and seeks the glory due to God's name. Secondly, I want us to look at another guy called King Nebuchadnezzar, a guy that we all know. Let's turn to Daniel, Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, just the context there, there before, Daniel chapter 4, something interesting happened. Before that, we have Daniel chapter 3, we have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and who? Abednego. This king had created an idol and statue and created, he made a decree that all people must do what? Bow before this statue. He went ahead and said, if you don't bow, bow down to this statue, I'm going to punish you. And he set out fire and purified it like seven times, so much so that, that those who were kind of coming close to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in one way or another consumed by that, by that fire. And at the end of it, in chapter 3, we see he sees God's faithfulness. There's a third man who joins Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right in there. And he notices that God just preserved these people who, divide, who defied sorry, my decree. And this is what um, the King Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 3 from verses 28. He says, Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has set his angel and rescued his servant. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in his way. This is a king who was a pagan king, and Nebuchadnezzar was a serious king. If you were to go and just read world history, there was probably no king like him in his generation, even in Babylon thereafter. He had a vast uh, territory. He had riches. He had created uh, and, and made great, great uh, inventions on that particular place. At this particular moment, he's created this idol, he has seen God's deliverance and he has said that if there is anyone who goes against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, let them be, let the, let them be cut into, into pieces. Take note of that and see what happens. Then thereafter in chapter 4, it starts with a very interesting thing. Just let's read verses 4, in Daniel chapter 4 from verses 4. It says that I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. That's a good place to be at. You are in your home, yeah, in your, or even, not even your home, in your palace. Yeah? The palatial homes you desire to have. You are contented and also you're doing what? You are prosperous. It was at that moment when God spoke to him about and revealed this vision to him. And he saw a great vision. He, he saw an enormous tree in the middle of that tree, uh, in, in the middle of the land. 
This tree grew, it leaps and bounds, it was strong. The under it were beasts uh, that found shelter. And in that dream, he saw a messenger coming from heaven. And just looking at that from verses 13, he says, In the vision I saw while lying in my bed, a good thing again, if you are contented, you are in a palace and you are prosperous, sleep is not far from you. Uh, he says, uh, In my vision I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one coming from, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut the tree and trim of its branches, strip of its Leaves and scatter its fruits, let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Then he says, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let, him mind, let his mind sorry, be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times passed by for him. And the agenda of that dream is actually highlighted in verse 17. The reason why this dream came to Nebuchadnezzar specifically was because of this. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to the one he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is someone who is, has all the power. He has all the majesty. He has all the glory. Receives this, um, this, this dream and this vision. And therefore looks for someone to interpret it. And Daniel is there. Daniel comes and interprets the dream. And he says, first of all, the tree that is huge, that tree represents you. You are great. You are strong. You have built this uh, magnanimous uh, palace. You have this territory. That is you. And it and you have reached to the, to the skies. Then the second thing, Daniel interprets this dream and says, you as a tree, you will, be cut, you will be cut off. And that symbolizes that he will be driven away from the people and live with wild animals, eating grass like cattle, and be drenched with dew from heaven. But also thirdly, there is a promise that we read um, in, verses, in chapter 4 from verses 15, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field so that in the event that he repents that actually God would restore him back to prosperity. But now let's just move forward and see what happens what happens thereafter. And on top of that Daniel goes ahead and gives him a warning like a clear warning. He has not only interpreted the dream, he goes ahead and says this is what you need to do with regards to the what? To the dream that you've seen. In Daniel 4.27 this is what Daniel says Therefore your majesty be pleased to accept my advice Renounce your sin by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Notice it says being kind to the oppressed and looking at what David says in Psalms 10 verses 2, he says that the wicked in his pride opposes the poor. So there's a link between the oppression of the poor and pride. And therefore, Daniel calls out King Nebuchadnezzar and tells, them, tells him, this dream, this is the interpretation. Heed to the call of wisdom. Heed to the call of humility. Renounce your sins. And you will be restored. But now let's just go ahead and see what happens thereafter. In Daniel chapter 4, from verses 29. Daniel chapter 4, from verses 29. It says, 12 months later, this is like one year later. God has seen him. 
God has told him that this is the vision that I have for you. Daniel has gone ahead and interpreted this is what you ought to do. One year later, the same same king. Remember in chapter 3 he said, actually cut everyone who does not believe in who? In Yahweh. The same same heart that seemed to praise God. Twelve months later, after a clear warning, says this. Verses 12, 29, chapter 4 from verses 29. It says, 12 months later, as, king, as the king was walking on the roof, I like the fact that there's just a lot of palace and roof. Uh, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? It's like a whole flip. The same guy in chapter 3 is humbled, acknowledging that there is no God like who? Like Yahweh. God again knows, again, let's remember that God knows the proud. He goes ahead and warns him, gives him this vision, and Daniel goes ahead and becomes clear with his warning and tells him, all you have to do is to do what? You ought to repent. And a year later, this guy goes ahead and says, is it not this, the great Babylon? I have built as the royal residence by my, mighty, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Notice what happens in verse 31. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat the grass with like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. 33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar. Remember he was on the rooftop. Acknowledging that I have made this by my own hands. Right before the words were off his lips, this guy, his whole system turns to an animal. He is on his fours eating grass, thara, napier grass, and his digestive system accommodating. If you did biology, you remember what, what happens to like the, the cows and they have, I don't know how, five stomachs, yeah? Four stomachs, yeah, thanks, thanks for that. Imagine all that happening and his digestive system readjusts for seven years. He's humbled, eating grass, a king after elevating himself. The seven years passes, and the interesting thing is that, again, that reminds us that God is willing to act speedily and with urgency to our pride. But also something interesting, God is also a gracious God that when he does give warnings, he had a whole year to actually turn back from his pride. But at the end of it all, what happens in verses 34, it says, at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. That kind of humbling would cause you to get your sanity back. <laughs> right? Then I praised the Most High, and he said, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. He says his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the power of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? It took God to humble him. And that actually shows us how Nebuchadnezzar's pride was so huge. Because on one side of the pedestal, he's kind of worshipping God. Then in the middle, he goes ahead and glorifies himself and God humbles him. 
And probably you might wonder and sit here and feel like, you know what, you can trust your heart. Your heart is so deceitful, like that of Nebuchadnezzar. On one time, you can actually see that, oh, I'm, I'm actually winning the, way, the war over pride. And then a year later, you're on the other part. And what they call that we want to make it to you is that as we start these seven diagnostic ways, this is not a bullet hit or run kind of moment. This is us opening an avenue for you to pursue godliness consistently, to keep your heart on check on every other sin that you're going to talk about. But also the other interesting thing is to look out for the warnings that God gives. God did warn King Nebuchadnezzar. He was gracious to warn him. There was no vagueness in God's communication. He gave, he gave him a vision. The vision was interpreted. And not only was the vision interpreted, interpre, interpreted they, Daniel went ahead and gave a clear cause of action unto repentance. But he didn't hear. He didn't heed to it. And probably for some of us, God has actually been nudging us that we are proud. Probably your spouse has been hinting that you are proud. But you, you're like, whatever. I mean, people have been telling you that I think you're proud in the office and you feel like that's envy. That's envy. Hey, you guys, because you haven't made it. If you had made it, you'd probably not be telling me these things. Right? But God is patient with you. Just like he was patient with King Nebuchadnezzar, he's willing to extend that path for you to turn back to him. He's also willing to go to the extents of halting and pausing through life circumstances for you to realize that you are only but dust before him and that you to give glory due to his name. I'm looking at COVID-19. If you're looking back at that, it was like pretty much like God putting a pause button to us and reminding us, it's not your job that provides for you. It is God who does what? Provides. It's not your insurance cover that guarantees you your health, right? It is God who gives good health. And like the Israelites, it's likely that all this can happen and we can find ourselves in moments of doubt and forget that there was COVID and you're here crying and trusting and praying. And then now the economy is back. You're doing well. Over the past two years, you have actually not only recovered, but even doubled your wealth. And there's a temptation that you can stand in that space of content, being content and prosperous and being in your palatial house while you sleep and when you wake up and as you walk on your rooftop and compound and go for those international trips, feel my degree, my intelligence, my connections. That's how I am at this particular situation. Now, there are two responses to this space. It's either you will humble yourselves before God or ignore him. But ultimately, one thing is certain. If God opposes the proud and if the proud set themselves against God and they say, let's meet face to face and contend, either in this life or the, or the next, you will be humbled. And therefore the question here is, then how then do we kill pride? The first way of killing pride is first of all acknowledging that you are proud. That you are proud. Acknowledging that you are sick acknowledging that we are in need of salvation or else in our folly we will self-destruct. It calls us to lean hard in the community around us that God has given us and to yield to their correction. To give them a benefit of doubt and to go ahead and examine ourselves. What if they are true that I am actually proud? This calls us to be like the tax collector as opposed to the Pharisee and look down to God, not look down to God, let's look down instead of even viewing God because of our sins and not beating our chest and saying, you know what, this is what I have done. Coming to him and saying, I am such a sinner and humbling ourselves before him. James 4, 
7 says, submit yourselves to God and he's willing to lift us up. Look to him and acknowledge that this is your true state of heart. Secondly, the antidote of pride is humility. I like the fact that scripture doesn't tell us to put off some things and then put on nothing. It tells us to put off pride and then put on humility. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is what true humility does. True humility fights to think of yourself less. True humility removes yourself out of way to esteem others better than yourself. Humility goes out of the way to acknowledge that every good and perfect gift is from the Father of lights. And thirdly, what is the final blow to pride? Is to repent. To come before God, bowed down, knelt before him, before his sovereign grace, acknowledging that we are a sinner. But also are we bowing down to a Christ who did not model this for us? Not at all. He calls himself, he says, I am a gentle and humble, I'm gentle and humble in heart. One of the ways that I can give you just a text that you can actually go ahead and reflect on as you think about this place of arming yourself with humility, when pride knocks at your heart, turn to what Jesus prescribes as, as the attitude of humility. This is what he says in Philippians 2, 6 to 8. He says, who being in the very nature God, do not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the advantage of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. The Son of God, the God-man, humbled himself to serve us. Now the question is, what would you choose today? Would you choose to live up to your pride and to ignore the wisdom call? And for you as a Christian, would you choose to humble yourself before God and confess this is who you are and turn to him? For you who is not saved, would you choose to acknowledge that you cannot win the war of pride or over it outside of God? Would you turn to him today in humble repentance, acknowledging that not only you, are you not proud in your space, but you have actually not been living your life with God in mind. You have not glorified him in your own ways. And therefore today, we get the opportunity to more or less take this in and reflect on the attitude of Christ. We get to share in the Holy Communion today. And I just cue the worship team just to come um, on stage. Today we get to remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross where our pride was nailed and dealt with. If there was one who had the right to demand and to be served, it was Jesus. Yet he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. If there was one who had a right to be set apart and to create social stratifications, not even based on our fecal um, treasures of silver and gold or beauty or in intelligence, but based on true riches of holiness, it was him. Yet he interacted with sinners. He reached out to the outcasts, the outcast men with leprosy. He invited a sinful Samaritan to come and drink and thirst no more. And at his feet, a sinner wept in total worship. As the servers come, at this time I don't welcome the, um, the staff members and the real group leaders just to wait on us. And as we do that, would you take us some time to, to pray? Here at Mablaka, we serve an open table to all believers who believe in Jesus Christ. Would you take some time just to confess your sin before him? Would you relinquish control over your pride? 
Would you turn to him for his faithfulness?